Welcome to episode four of Square Talk. This week's episode, we are focusing on the role of Provincial Grand Orator, which in our case is ably filled by Worshipful Brother David Hughes. David, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Richard. Hope you are too. Keeping well, keeping out of mischief and keeping busy. David, first of all, tell me, well, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. When did you, when did you start? When did you, be, did you become a Freemason? What are the highlights of your Masonic journey so far? Well, I am actually, in origin, a Sussex Mason. Um, not that I was born in Sussex. I was actually born in the West Midlands. But I was introduced into Freemasonry by a very dear old Masonic friend whom I met at university. And uh, he was in a lodge in Sussex, and his father was the secretary of this lodge. And he broached the subject with me. He just planted the little seed and let it take root, and it grew. And then I got back to him and said, tell me more. And so I became a member of the Earl of Sussex Lodge, number 2201, uh, in 1981. And uh, it's a lodge that meets on a Saturday, uh, four times a year. Uh, it was very convenient in those days. I wasn't married. Uh, I could go down from Leicester uh, on a Friday afternoon. We'd have a rehearsal on the Friday evening. We'd have the lodge meeting on the Saturday, uh, finishing in time to get into the hotel bar for the happy hour when all the other guests said you can't get to the bar because of all those confounded Freemasons. And then um, <laughs> we, uh, we, I would make my way back home on the Sunday. So that's how I started. And in due course, I went through the chair of that lodge. So that was an initial highlight. That would be 1989. Um, since then, I've been through the chair of Rotary Temple Lodge and, of course, the chair of the Lodge of Research. So those are three particular highlights in my career. Having gone through the chair three times, I think the last time I just about got it right. Um, <laughs> is that I, the norm for most people three times I, and you I, get it I right would, I, I would always say to anyone who gets the chance to go through a second time do it because you'll enjoy it a lot more the second time than the first first time you'll learn inevitably uh, the second time or the third time you know what you're doing and you can enjoy it more uh, the other grand highlight of course was when I got my grand rank in uh, 2019 actually in Freemasons Hall in Great Queen Street and that, that's a wonderful experience though the building is terrifying down this flight of stairs up that flight of stairs along that corridor round this corner into this room out of that oh it's 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 the most frightening building but it's a wonderful experience when you get there but but you managed it I was there to see you get it so you were indeed and it, you helped me enormously because if you remember some nice kind brother mason actually filched my regalia when we were having lunch and uh, i think it was your good self and uh, our current provincial grandmaster who very kindly went around the building and got it back for me <laughs> yes lo looking for a black case in freemasons hall is always a bit of a challenge <laughs> it is indeed yes so that's the other what the other great highlight i think i'd want to mention uh, is of course the celebrations for the tercentenary when I was privileged to be invited to go to the Royal Albert Hall. And that was an absolutely fantastic experience. I will never forget that day, being in that magnificent building and seeing the procession of the rulers in the craft, preceded by the grand stewards, coming down the staircase and making their way to their seats. 
accompanied by the entrance and march of the peers from Iolanthe uh, by that great Masonic composer, Sir Arthur Sullivan. Wonderful experience. Now, if my research is correct, and it isn't always correct, so I'll, I'll try. So you became Provincial Grand Orator in 2016, I believe? I did. And for some listening, they may not know what the role of orator is. So can you tell me more about what you do and, and also how does it differ from province to province? Okay, well, we've got to go back to 2008. And in that year, the then programme master, the Marquis of Northampton, came to the perfectly logical and indeed proper conclusion that many Masons don't know a great deal about what you can call the background to the craft. They may know the ceremony, but they don't necessarily know what they mean, where they've come from, uh, what their inner meaning might be. And so he determined that there should be an officer of the Grand Lodge called the Grand Auditor, who would prepare a series of lectures and addresses to be delivered at a provincial level and lodge level uh, by other orators who were then to be part of the provincial structure. So these addresses were prepared. Unfortunately, one has to say they were perhaps, shall we say, a little on the long side, and they were probably a little too detailed. I don't want to use the word academic because I'm an academic myself, and I don't like the word academic being used in a pejorative sense, but they were perhaps over detailed, and they didn't go down at all well, and Grand Lodge abandoned the office of Grand Orator. But by then, provinces had begun to appoint provincial grand orators. Regalia had been designed and obtained. So what do you do? Now, the problem is that there's no template. There's no job description for the provincial grand orator. Uh, if brethren want to do this, you can Google provincial grand orator and you'll go around various provinces and you'll find all sorts of answers have been reached in all sorts of different places. So there's no one single model for the Office of Provincial Grand Orator. In my case, um, I had actually begun, I think it was actually in 2015, to begin work at the request of our then Provincial Grand Master uh, on a series of short addresses to be used in lodges. For example, when the candidate is out returning himself to his personal comforts and you have that gap and what do you do in it? And in some lodges, you might get the chance having a, a suite and a conversation. Well, it, it's rather a waste of time. And we thought there ought to be something to fill that time. So I began writing a series of short addresses um, on aspects of Freemasonry, not more than 10 to 15 minutes at the outside. Now, at the same time, work was beginning on that wonderful Masonic resource, Solomon. And a lot of my work has now gone into Solomon. And that now does provide a wonderful range of material which lodges can access and use. So when I took over as Provincial Grand Auditor, it was natural for me to continue my role in a ceremonial and literary manner. So I have created addresses for particular occasions. For example, uh, last year when we celebrated the um, 150th anniversary of the foundation of the province of Leicestershire and Rutland. 
uh, we had the Vale of Catmoss Lodge come into London Road and I created a special address for the occasion. So um, that's really been my role. But in other provinces, the orator has been much more associated with the training officer. Um, and it has to be remembered that we are a remarkably centralised province. Most of our lodges meet at London Road. Also, we're a remarkably successful province. Most of our lodges do have a good number of candidates and a good number of ceremonies. It's not like that elsewhere. You go to other provinces, you'll find that the lodges are much more spread out across the face of the land, and many of them do not have the number of candidates that they need. So orators there tend to go out and deliver messages. They, they perhaps encourage debates. They perhaps... Uh, encourage a debating meeting. So, for example, you get a, a team will go to a lodge and um, they'll, they'll say, well, let's debate a particular point about Freemasonry and then we'll decide who's won the debate. Uh, and there are all sorts of, of different things. Um, we, we do have an orators forum which covers most of the East Midlands and a little bit of the West Midlands as well. And we meet in Northampton and um, we haven't been able to have a meeting this year for obvious reasons, uh, but uh, the meeting we had last year made it quite clear to me that what we do in Leicestershire and Rutland is very, very different from what our neighbouring provinces do. So um, there isn't any one single model of what a provincial grand orator does. Indeed, I can actually say I know of one province, no names, no factorial, one province where a comparatively junior provincial grand officer had only just got past provincial grand uh, assistant grand director of ceremonies, first, first appointment. Um, and he was called in by the PGM of that province and said, I'm going to make you uh, the uh, provincial grand officer, auditor, uh, make what you can of it. Uh, fortunately, he was able to turn to other provincial grand auditors and we were able to give him a few pointers and, and some assistance. But that is the issue. Um, if anybody were, was to say to me, what does a provincial grand orator do? I would have to give the somewhat um, strange answer. He carries out provincial grand oratorical functions. I, lo I love that. Uh, that. That's a fantastic explanation. <laughs> you should have just said that at the beginning. <laughs> Yes, well, it's, uh, it, 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 you know, it's, it's like the old phrase in the Church of England, what do archdeacons do? Oh, they carry out archidiacal functions. So that's what provincial grand officers do as well. We carry out oratorical functions. Um, and obviously, um, you know, you, you, you do really what your provincial grandmaster wants you to do. And um, our last provincial grandmaster, uh, right worshipful brother David Hagger, wanted me to be a literary man. So that's what I have been. Um, now, quite what our new provincial grandmaster will want, I'm not so, so certain. Uh, it's not for me to second guess him. Uh, he will have his own ideas. And to, at the moment, as we can all guess, he's got quite enough on his plate thinking about other things. Well, he'll be listening to this. So no doubt expect the phone to call as soon as he's <laughs> finished. Yes, uh, yes. And as long as he doesn't chew my ear off. But, uh, <laughs> Peter and I are... Um, old friends and um, we've worked together in a number of contexts for, for a good many years uh, but uh, I'm not going to second guess his policy decisions. So here's, I've got a 
desert island discs type of question for you. You've you mentioned addresses and talks and, and lectures. So if you had a choice to deliver just one lecture or address or talk, it could be anything, what would it be? Can I say two in, in answer to that question? Uh, of course one you of, can. One of the things I have worked on over the last few years is a complete biographical study of all the grand organists of Grand Lodge in the 19th century. From 1813, when the post was created for Samuel Wesley, right the way through to 1900. And two things emerge from that. You have the saints and the sinners. You have those organists who are extremely fine players, who are very dedicated masons, and who bring honor to the position. On the other hand, you've got the rogues. You've got one in particular. Um, I'm really rather fond of this chap. His name was Christopher Willing. And he was a very fine player. He trained as a choir boy at Westminster Abbey. And he was organist for a number of leading London churches. He was a very fine teacher, a very fine um, arranger of music. But his personal life was very sad, very sad indeed. He and his wife split up. Of course, in those days, you really couldn't get divorced. Divorce was not really available to middle-class people. They couldn't afford it. So he and his wife split up, and he descends in the world. He becomes an inhabitant of lodging houses in not particularly nice parts of London. Uh, and then he drops out of Freemasonry, having been grand organist. Um, and the next we hear of him is he's changed denomination, he's become a Roman Catholic, and he marries a lady and then leaves her. And he ends his days penniless in a little house off what we now call the North Circular Road. So it's a terribly sad story of someone who was very, very able, very, very accomplished, um, wrote one hymn tune, which we still sing, um, and then just becomes destitute, terribly sad. Um, so he's one um, that I'd, I'd like to talk about. The, the other thing is the internal politics of Grand Lodge in the middle years of the 19th century. Uh, nowadays, Grand Lodge, when it meets, very, very formal uh, body, it receives reports, it receives addresses, the, the Grand Master or the Program Master, as the case may be, will deliver an address. Um, it will be very, very formal. Go back to the middle of the 19th century, Grand Lodge actually debated issues. There were disagreements, and sometimes those disagreements could get really quite, uh, quite nasty. Disagreements? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, you know uh, but these would be actually in the body of the Grand Lodge itself. I mean, we can all, all you know, Masons will always disagree outside of a formal context. But you don't expect there to be that, that sort of argument. And there were arguments which were recorded in the Masonic press of the day about, first of all, should they spend money on the organ in Freemasons Hall? Uh, secondly, um, who should be the grand organist? There were, you know, there were various people who were appointed and other people did not like the appointments and they were vocal in their criticism. So, you know, there is politics in the Grand Lodge and it is recorded. Now, the interesting thing is that 
that period coincides with the gap between the death of His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex and the appointment of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, Prince Albert Edward, as Most Worshipful Grand Master. So in between, you've got a succession of noblemen as Grand Master. And I suppose Freemasons felt that they could be more vocal in their criticisms during that period than they could when there was a Prince of the Blood Royal. Because it's noticeable that once the Prince of Wales becomes Grand Master, all of that criticism ceases. It just ends. That's it. It's all done. Um, so that, that I'd, I'd like to do something on that at some point because it's a massive piece of work that I've done. It's between 50,000 and 60,000 words. One day I hope it'll get published in the transactions of the Lodge of Research, so it may have to take a, a number of issues. Uh, but we'll see. But that is something I would like to do. Right, so let me put you on the spot now. What would you like to study next? What, you know, if, if there's something in Freemasonry that you don't know that you could probably do, you could find out with some research and to create perhaps a, an address or, or even a lecture on, what would it be? Oh, there are a number of things. Um, I mean, one of the most frustrating periods in Freemasonry is what happened during the 17th century. Uh, we know that the first recorded instance of an English Freemason being initiated was Elias Ashmole in 1646 in Warrington. And then there's a gap of 40 years before Ashmole actually records in his diary that he attended a Masonic meeting in London and he was the most senior Mason present. So he was made in effect the, the president of the meeting. Uh, and at the same time, we also know from Plot's Natural History of Staffordshire that there were Masonic meetings in the county of Staffordshire. But there's very, very little documentary evidence. Indeed, I don't think there's any documentary evidence from what I've been able to discover about England at that time. We know a lot more about Scotland because the Scots were more meticulous in keeping their records. So we know that the development of Freemasonry in Scotland um, is much more documented. And therefore, it's, it's interesting to, to read up more about that. So that's, that's one area. Uh, one thing I did read a few days ago, which I feel could be a subject for further research, is that by the end of the 17th century, there were more coffee houses in London per head of the population than there are today. We all know how popular coffee wow. houses Wow, really? <laughs> yes, there were. There were more coffee houses. Coffee was the fashionable drink of the day. But of course, it was a men's drink. Men went to coffee houses. So is there a connection between the increasing popularity of Freemasonry? We, we know that's the case because obviously it's what led to the formation of the Premier Grand Lodge. Is there a connection between coffee houses and Freemasonry? Did men who met drinking a, 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 a dish of coffee, as they used to say in those days, did they then feel the need to make their relationship somewhat more formal, somewhat more ceremonial, uh, somewhat more informed by philosophies and attitudes towards life? So there's some research to be done there. I, I can see another degree coming on there. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the, the degree of the coffee drinker. Yes, I can see the logo now. <laughs> but now, we're obviously in strange times at the moment. 
with and with adversity obviously comes opportunity to change and change for the good uh, one of the examples i would cite is, is this podcast is something that we've wanted to do for a long time and never got around to doing it but now due to this period of lockdown we've we, we've brought it to the front and we've kicked them off how, how do you see the role of orator changing in the future sort of to meet the demands of the current and the future generations of freemasons i think there are two aspects to what we may call the broadly educational role. I've got to be very careful when I use that word education, because if you mention education to a lot of Masons, they'll just run off for the hills straight away. What we have to try to do is to combine erudition with entertainment. We've got to make learning fun. It's no use standing up in front of a, a group of chaps who for example, either given up their Saturday morning to come in, perhaps uh, being pursued by their wives and children who say, Dad, you said you'd take us swimming, or you said you'd paint the back kitchen this weekend, and now you're off to London Road again. Uh, or they perhaps come in uh, at the end of a long working day, uh, and they're tired. Um, and it's no use standing up in front of them and being terribly didactic and saying, you must do, do this, you must learn that. Um, we've got to find a way in which those events, whenever we hold them, be they Saturday morning meetings or evening meetings, and there's room for disagreement on that issue, for example, they've got to be entertaining. People have got to feel that it's going to be a pleasurable event, that they're actually going to, to learn something. And there are two issues to, to those meetings. One of them is the what you can call the specific training side taking chaps through the various offices that they must fulfill on their way to the chair. And in particular, emphasizing the need to think very, very hard about how you're going to be worshipful master and what your year is going to look like. And you don't do that when you're senior warden. You start doing that, I would say, when you're senior deacon. You've got to be thinking two or more years ahead all the time. So that's one side. The other side of it, and again, this is something I think to which we'll probably need to give a bit more thought, is actually making available to Masons the, the philosophy that lies behind the craft. What does it really mean? What, you know, we say, what is a Mason? He's a good man today and a better man tomorrow. Okay, how do we get to that? What does it mean to each individual to be trying to live up to that notion, that idea. What does it actually mean when we say it's a peculiar system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols? What are the symbols? What are the allegories? What do they mean? And I think we've probably got to encourage members to make a lot more use of, of Solomon. I can't recommend Solomon highly enough. We've also got to recommend to them the transactions of the Lodge of Research, which are actually available online. Every volume down to, I think, 2013 is easily accessible through the uh, Lodge of Research website. You just Google that, uh, Transactions Lodge of Research, up it comes, and you can scroll down. And there's an enormous amount of material which is available via the, the Lodge of Research. And you can just dip in and out. You don't have to read an entire volume. You, you look at something, well, that looks interesting. I'll take a look at that. And up it comes on the screen and you can, you can read that. But maybe we need to have some forums 
maybe we need to have teams which are prepared to go not just to London Road, but to the other calls in the province and say, you know, just come along, ask your questions. We'd like to know what those questions are in advance, obviously, so we can prepare some answers. But, you know, what does it mean to do this? Why, why do we do that? What exactly is the significance of such and such a thing? And uh, it may be that we can um, get people to understand a little bit more about Freemasonry because it, it's a fascinating topic. So we're, been... talk, we're talking about getting the right content to the right people at the right time and in That's the right it. way. And, and to do that, you obviously have to you know, engage with the potential audience. So mm. if talk about audience, so if you could ask one question of the potential audience about, about the role of Provincial Grand Orator and the, 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 the training on what we would like to help deliver, what would you ask them? I think what I would like to say is, what do you want to hear from not just the auditor, but probably the rest of the training team? Because I think probably the way forward is, and this is what happens in most provinces, by the way, now, the auditor is much more integrated into the training team. What is it you would like to hear from us? Are there any particular areas that you'd like us to address? Are there particular issues that you feel are not being covered properly? So I think really what we need to find out is what people want of us. And then we have to think about how we deliver that to them. Well, as, as um, our communications officer, as I am, I shall take up that challenge and <laughs> I will talk to you again and we'll work out a way of finding out, as you say, what do people want david i've really enjoyed this uh however i have to cut it short now okay so i've got to say thank you very much indeed for your time taking the time to talk to us on this podcast we do hope to see you again in a lodge time very very soon as soon as we are able yeah well thank you richard uh, i know uh, i am actually excessively fond of the sound of my own voice so it's been very good to have this opportunity and thank you for all your help thank excellent you. thanks david Thanks.